Hi folks, Daniel Mullins here. Thank you so much for supporting Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Before we start with today's episode, I want to invite you to join Ty and myself for a very special event coming up in Raleigh, North Carolina during the 2019 World of Bluegrass hosted by the International Bluegrass Music Association. On Friday, September the 27th, we will be recording a live podcast with special guest Alan Mills. Alan Mills is a beloved member of the bluegrass community, founding member of the legendary bluegrass band The Lost and Found, and a founding member of the International Bluegrass Music Association. I know we'll have a ton of fun, we'll laugh, and we'll learn from a real bluegrass legend. And you are invited to join us 10.30 a.m. at the Raleigh Convention Center in Raleigh, North Carolina on Friday, September the 27th. We'll be at the workshop stage and we hope that you'll join us for a live podcast recording as we sit down with bluegrass legend Alan Mills, a 2019 recipient of IBMA's Distinguished Achievement Award. That's Friday, September the 27th, 10.30 a.m. Join us for a live podcast recording. And now on to the next episode of Walls of Time. Thank you. Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast is sponsored by Who's Your Devil, supporting and promoting roots music in Western North Carolina and beyond. Owned and operated by Maggie Rainwater, who incidentally is one of the hardest working people I know, Who's Your Devil offers a variety of services, including graphic and web design, publicity, and social media management to promote your band, album, or event. Visit the team on social media at hoosierdevil.com. That's H-O-O-S-I-E-R-D-E-V-I-L.com. Who's your devil? Welcome to Walls of Time, field interviews with the best in bluegrass. From fan to icon, the grateful and brilliant Sierra Hull tells her story of how she got her start by meeting her personal musical heroes. From a bright family upbringing to becoming friends with her idols, Sierra is a breath of fresh air and a powerful modern acoustic artist rooted in bluegrass. Listen to her stories of how her dreams came true in pursuit of musical excellence by kicking back with her and Daniel Mullins in her living room in Nashville, Tennessee. So, Miss Sierra... Um, I've got to ask, when did you pick up your first mandolin? I was eight when I officially learned my first tune on the mandolin. I thought I was going to play fiddle because I got one for Christmas and it was a, a full size. My grandma and my aunt and uncle went in together and bought me one, but you know, it was just too big. I was pretty little for an eight year old and, uh, and so my dad had been learning to play mandolin a little bit himself. And so he said, well, you know, they're tuned alike. And, of course, there's the difference between the pick and the bow. But I could show you a, a tune, and then at least we'll, we'll get you a smaller fiddle. But then you'll at least know where to put your fingers with your left hand. So I said, okay. And I think he taught me bowl them cabbage down or something. And, you know, it's, it's so long ago, it's hard to remember exactly. But I just, I never looked back. I know I loved it immediately. And... Um, seems like it took a while for us to get a smaller fiddle and, you know, by that point I was already a few weeks into mandolin and was just falling in love with it and never really looked back. So you just took to it supernaturally? I did. I just loved it. Um, 
you know, it's it's interesting how you can just connect with something sometimes immediately like that. But um, it just felt, yeah, it felt like the thing to do. You know, my dad was learning to play a little bit. And I didn't think much about it at the time, like as far as like, oh, wow, I'm learning quickly or anything like that. It was just, you know, okay, cool. He showed me something and I would try to, you know, play it back or, or learn it. And, um, and I just remember... You know, my mom and dad saying, if you'll stick with it, um, because at the time my dad had saved up his, you know, enough to buy, uh, I think it was a a Woods Mandolin. That was the brand, you know, probably six, seven hundred bucks, which was a lot of money, you know, for just a hobby. (laughs) Yeah, totally. And uh, and so I'm here. I am this little eight year old, you know, thinking I want to play an instrument, but he didn't, you know, hand me that right away he we had um my uncle played mandolin too and was self-taught not a real skilled player but um you know loved it played all the time and he had an old bowl back mandolin one of those old italian like a tater bug yeah tater bug yeah exactly that's what they always called it and uh and so they gave me that tater bug mandolin and that's what i learned my first tune on and then my dad told me if i would stick with it that in a couple months they'd get me my own mandolin and so I did I kept trying to learn you know whatever he was showing me which was a few chords and maybe red-haired boy or you know yeah. tunes along the way and um sure enough a couple months later I got myself a A-style Kentucky mandolin from my parents so man when you started soaking up uh, all this mandolin music as a young kid who were some of your your biggest influences or heroes well I remember hearing probably the earliest um influence that I truly remember like pre even getting a mandolin was Dole Lawson and Quicksilver. So I remember we listened to all kinds of Dole's gospel albums and um, being able to, you know, basically my brother and I grew up singing in church and we would hear music that way. And, and my dad learned to play guitar enough to play, you know, a few chords to back us up. And my mom always just had a real natural singing ability. You know, she, um, wasn't formally trained in any kind of way either, but just, you know, a lot of people in this part of the world, everybody kind of sings and it's not abnormal for people to hear music or sing harmonies in church, you know, whether you're just singing out of the hymn books or whatever. And so my mom, you know, taught my brother and I how to sing. And, um, yeah, as I kind of progressed, you know, we went from like listening to all the Dole Lawson and Quicksilver, uh, acapella stuff where we were just trying to you know, sing only with my dad playing guitar. And then as I was progressing on mandolin, I started learning to play along to some of those songs that we were singing. And, um, you know, we play in church and, um, and then, you know, my dad got really into bluegrass, uh, after, I think if I'm remembering correctly after he'd always loved it, even as a kid, but you know, he loves all kinds of music, like eighties rock and stuff like that. And, um, he got a Larry Sparks tape. And it really just, you know, lit a fire, a bluegrass fire again in him. And so I remember um, hearing Larry Sparks early on, um, you know, and that just shortly after really picking up the mandolin, it's like there's so much great bluegrass to discover. So it was like every week I was being introduced to, you know, some new band that I didn't know. I remember my dad waking me up when I was like nine years old and, and being, you know, cause he had heard the self-titled, the, the blue highway yeah. album, you know, and, you know, I hung my head and we were just like, Oh my gosh. And third time out, Ricky Skaggs, you know, Sam Bush, um, you know, I've got my first Allison album, Allison Krauss album when I was nine years old and, you know, Nickel Creek. And it's just, you know, it's both the older traditional stuff, um, but then also like things that were current at the time, like that, you know, Nickel Creek 
uh, their debut Sugar Hill album that Allison produced, you know. So we we were just, you know, on fire, it felt like, just like sucked in the bluegrass, you know. <laughs> the bluegrass world, just, you know, so hardcore. We loved it. You mentioned Nickel Creek, and I know that um, a, a huge influential moment in your life uh, early on in your musical journey was getting to meet Chris Thiele at a young age. Can you tell me about that experience? Yeah, so I mean, I I had become this huge Allison fan. Um, my first album I got of hers was this album called Forget About It, which isn't a bluegrass album, you know, it's... it's uh, just a beautiful album full of this the saddest songs but um it's just such a great great record and um from there i fell so in love with her voice that we started trying to get our hands on all the older albums that she had made too so things like every time you say goodbye and so long so wrong and i just fell so in love with those albums which led me to hear adam steffi and so i was so excited to hopefully get to hear you know, Union Station, Krause and Union Station live at some point, but I grew up in this tiny little town in Tennessee with 900 people called Birdstown, and nobody came anywhere near, you know, where where I lived, and um, so I didn't really know if I would get to see her live for a long time, and we got a, um, there was a guy named Lowell Logan who was a local fiddle player that would always bring a copy of Bluegrass Unlimited to my house each month. <laughs> he'd check it out and then he'd drop it by and let me have it, which was so sweet. And I remember I would skim the pages and just see if I could find Allison's name anywhere because I was just such a little nerd, such a little <laughs> fan. And and so I remember seeing the advertisement for Merle Fest and Allison's name was in there listed. And of course, I'd already seen it. And, and later when my dad was flipping through the magazine, he said, hey, did you see this? And I said, oh, yeah, I saw she's playing at that festival. And Way ahead of your dad. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And he said, do you want to go? And, you know, it was in North Carolina. I mean, I hadn't really traveled anywhere much at that point. And I was like, oh what really you know and of course you know all these great bands were going to be there nickel creek was going to be there too so i just i couldn't believe it and i thought oh my gosh like what if i get to meet allison Krauss? like i'm gonna you know i just knew i was going to you know it's like you know i was i think 10 years old at that point and uh we'd never been to a festival that big before everything that i and I, it's a big one <laughs> it's, a, it's a big one and and so you know i forget how far it is from birdstown probably seven hours at least which might as well have been you know across the 20 yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we might as well have been driving to california but i remember just being like oh my gosh we're going to a festival in north carolina and so and i'm gonna get to meet allison Krauss. like i was just expecting that she was just gonna be out like signing autographs yeah that she's just gonna be walking around <laughs> she's gonna be chilling yeah, you know? yeah. <laughs> of course why not she's gonna be selling she's gonna run at her record table her own merch. Yeah, her Shaking howdy line. It's going to be perfect. (laughs) Yeah. And so, so anyway, we get there on a Friday and even my parents, I think, because, you know, we were pretty new to this whole scene. And uh, I think even they were like, wow, this is a really big festival. And so they said to me, um, and of course I had my little half size fiddle that I had gotten at that point. And I was determined that I was going to get her to sign it and, you know, I was going to get a meter. And I remember my mom and dad saying, no, honey, just don't get your hopes up too much because, you know, you might not get to meet her. This is a really big festival, but, but you know, on, just look on the bright side. You'll get to hear her play live, and that's going to be special, and someday you'll get to meet her, even if you don't this weekend. Maybe you will, but, you yeah. know, we don't know. Yeah. And so I just said, oh, just please pray I get to meet her. And I actually found my journal that I wrote when I was 10 years old oh, about, great. This, about this whole event just the other day, and I was just, like, detailed, you know, about how, <laughs> you know, I 
couldn't wait. I was going to get to meet Allison. <laughs> and so anyway. With no idea how this plan I was going to happen. I know. I just, was, I just knew it was going to happen. And so then um, we get there and we're, we're walking around. She was going to play Saturday night and we're walking. Um, I had jammed a little bit Friday night when we got there. Just They have the little trade show booths and everything and, and had picked with some folks, you know, uh, the night before and so the next day we're walking around and I guess we didn't realize that Chris Thiele and Mike Marshall were playing a set but they had just finished and we like stumbled upon it and it was like oh my gosh like we missed her show but Chris is signing autographs you know so I got in line there was a bunch of people kind of huddled around hoping to get a signature and um, I had a my girl power mandolin strap at the time this purple you know it was really a lanyard kind of strap, you know, and, and my parents had made it into this little mandolin strap for me. And so I waited in line and got a picture and told him how much I loved his playing and got a signature. And I was on my way. I was just so thrilled that at yeah. least I got to meet Chris Thiele. Oh my gosh. And so then we probably walked, I mean, I, I don't know. It was just, you know, hundred yards away it wasn't even that far really we could still sort of off in the distance see Chris and Mike hanging out over there and um this dad um and his daughter walked up to me and my family and said are you that little girl that we heard jamming in the little trade show booth last night and um I was like yeah that was me and he goes I was telling my daughter about seeing you last night I know this is crazy but would you just play her a tune I'd just love so much for her to hear you play so I was like, okay. So my dad, I don't know. My dad is probably pretty slick. He probably might have had a hunch this could happen. I don't know. But he said, yeah, why don't you play that Ode to Butterfly? <laughs> which, is, which is the first song off of the, the Nickel Creek album that we had been listening to. And I had, you know, been trying to learn it. It was like one of the newest things I'd been really working on. And so I was like, okay. So I played a little bit of it. I mean, we were definitely far enough away that, Chris wouldn't have heard it, but, you know, people kind of slowly started gathering around me as I'm playing this tune, and somebody went, oh, she's playing Chris's tune, and they, like, ran over there, and they, I think it was Mike Marshall, actually, somebody grabbed Mike, and Mike was like, that's Thiele's tune, and went and got Chris, and by the end of the the song, I look up, and I was kind of knelt down on the ground, you know, playing, I think, I don't You were picking, you didn't have to worry about it. I mean, I was, like, looking down, you know, and, and I look up. And he's right in front of me, just watching me play. And he goes, holy crap, want to play it together? And I just was like, oh my gosh. Like, I was first off like, oh my, oh, he just heard me play his tune. Like, oh. Um, but then I was like, yes, that'd be amazing. And and so, uh, you know, we found a quiet little corner. And he sat there and jammed with me for, you know, probably two hours. Which wow. was just, you know the thrill of a lifetime for a little 10 year old kid that just was such a fan of his playing. And, um, and he actually took me backstage to meet Alison Krauss. Um, so it's just all kind of worked out in this magical way. And I was so, so grateful. It's so cool how these, these just chance opportunities turn into life altering events. You know, yeah. you just happen to pick a tune. Chris hears it just happens to take you backstage, seeing me Alison Krauss, which is like, something you'd been wanting more than anything and uh then that opportunity uh, presented itself uh with many more opportunities for you didn't it 
Yeah, I mean, it's interesting, really, how it all kind of unfolded after that, because my meeting with Allison at Merlefest was literally just a quick hello, a photo. She signed my fiddle. I was perfectly content. That was all I wanted. I just wanted to be able to, you know, meet her. Yeah. Um, And then, fast forward, that was in April, and then fast forward, I guess, in probably early October, into September, October, I was at IBMA for my... I think it was the second IBMA I'd ever been to. And I was there um, playing as part of the Kids on Bluegrass. I'd been this is in, in Nashville, right? Uh, no, oh, it was actually in Louisville. Still in Louisville, okay. Yeah, and at the Galt House. So my first couple years, I think, was at the Galt House. And um, so also felt like this crazy big trip that we got to make. And, you know, my first year I had met Ricky Skaggs and got to play on stage with Third Time Out that very first year. And I met Earl Scruggs and Sam Bush. And so I just couldn't wait to get back to... IBMA because it felt like this just magical place. Bluegrass Disney World. It is. Oh my gosh, I know. (laughs) And so um, I, you know, again, in my innocent little way of thinking, you know, I'm just, everybody's going to be there, of course, because everybody's there. And so I thought, I I bet you some of Allison's band will be there. What if I got to meet some of the band this time? (laughs) Because I got to meet her, but I didn't get to meet her. Your little wheels have been turning (laughs) since Merlefest. What can I I wish into existence this time? Totally. I mean, I just, you know, and you just, it's hard. Um, I I think everybody probably has somebody that they relate to, whether it's like a sports figure or musicians or, you know, movie stars or whatever, that you just, you really have this sincere love for these people. It's like this childlike you know, love, not just love of their music, but you're just fascinated by the idea of these people you admire so much. And so yeah. I thought, oh my gosh, like, what if I get to meet, you know, some of Union Station? <laughs> and so I wasn't sure, but I thought, you know, maybe they'll be there. And so I was jamming uh, backstage with a bunch of the kids that were getting ready to play for the the kids on Bluegrass, and in walks Ron Block. And I was like, Ron Block <laughs> and I was so excited and I thought oh my gosh I gotta meet him so after the jam kind of finished he was just hanging out um you know in, in the little side room there and so I thought oh my gosh well I'm gonna go meet him so you know and my parents always they kind of encouraged me like we'll go up and say hello you know and that kind of stuff and I was a little bit shy but you know they kind of always pushed me a little bit like go introduce yourself and say hi and you know they'll be nice I'm sure so I went up and I was like hi you know Ron I'm such a fan and I think I asked him if he would um I recall asking him if he would play a tune with me he says he recalls hearing me play and expecting to hear a grown man. <laughs> and he kind of did a double take, and it was this little girl, you know. But I think I even asked him, maybe I was playing, maybe he heard me play before. I'm not really sure. But, like, either way, I remember asking him, you know, would you be willing to pick a tune with me? And and so he was just so nice, so gracious, and, and we jammed a handful of tunes. And, um, and then I remember even later on that evening, he came up to the hotel room uh, with... Uh, his guitar and jammed with me and my brother who was also my brother played plays too and and I just thought that was so cool and generous of him to go out of his way to take time to visit with my family and to jam with me and my brother and I guess it was at around that time I had just released my very first um, instrumental album called Angel Mountain (laughs) it was like just traditional tunes you know and I think we gave him a copy, and then I, I believe, if my memory serves me right, I might have signed a copy to Allison, <laughs> too, you know, like, to my hero, Allison Krauss. 
And I don't really know how all the events unfolded after that, but I don't know if it was a result of him giving her the CD or if maybe he told her about me and maybe, you know, probably was like, this girl is just like obsessed with you. She loves you. (laughs) Because I was. Um, But the next thing I know, Allison calls my house. She gets my phone number, I guess from Ron and, and, uh, and calls my house and invites me to come play the Grand Ole Opry. So, you know, it went from just a brief meeting with her to really meeting Ron Block and then her calling after that, which was just, you know, such an unbelievable opportunity. And um, so to go, I'd played the Grand Ole Opry a few months before with with my brother, uh, Mike Snyder, brought us on to make our actual Opry debut. But, um, you know, I'd always hoped that maybe someday I'd get to play with her on the Grand Ole Opry. That was also like, I have pictures that I drew when I was like, you know, nine years old of me on stage with (laughs) at the Grand Ole Opry and the whole band, you know. And so I just couldn't believe it. I was like, oh my gosh, you know, for one, I'm going to get to go back and play the Grand Ole Opry again. Like, I just couldn't believe that I was going to get to go back, but to play with her as well. And and, um, that was uh, when the Opry was on television at the time and it was on CMT and a lot of people saw that and that opened up some opportunities you know from that so I'm so grateful to her for you know those opportunities early on that even something like that brought my way a lot of people uh, will talk about meeting their heroes and be disappointed but it seems that with you you meeting your heroes exceeded all your expectations when a child is excited about meeting you today do you think back about when you got to meet Allison and Chris and Ron and they were just over the top 100%. Yeah. I mean, I met, you know, early on, I met Sam Bush. He sat down, he jammed with me for a long period of time. Um, Adam Steffi was kind enough to play tunes with me. Ricky Skaggs had me on stage with him when I was like 10 years old. You know, Allison being as generous as she was as a young kid to have me come play with her. Ron, like all these people, Chris, um, it's, it's really, you know, something that I'm so grateful for because it can be crushing, I'm sure, as a, a young person to, like, love your heroes in the way that I'm talking about. Because you do. You love them in this way that's, like, you know, beyond you anything you really feel as an adult. It's a different kind. There's a different kind of wonder there. When you're a kid, it's this innocent, just like, you know, everything is new and you're learning to play this instrument that you're just fascinated by and everything about the music is just so exciting. And so, you know, to be able to have people welcome you in and be that kind to you, it's just, it makes a lasting impression, I think. So I always think about that when I have young people come up to me, you know, and think about, I, it doesn't seem like it was that long ago that that was me really. It was a long time ago now, but you know, it's like, it's easy to remember how excited I would have been. Now in hindsight, it's, it's hard for me to imagine that anybody could ever feel the way about me that I felt about those people. You know, it's like hard to even imagine that I could, you know, somebody could care about my music the way I cared about music of, you know, Tony Rice and Alice Krauss and all these great people. But, um, but still it's such a, a cool thing to have, you know, people want you to play a tune with them or do you think that's something that's unique to bluegrass music in this community? I do. I think it's something extremely special. Um, because most of the people in this style of music um, are more accessible than, say, if, like, you know, your hero is Beyonce or, you know, 
Justin Bieber or some of these superstars, which, you know, um, you know, you might get to meet at some point, but it's, it's a, it's, um, in a lot of ways, a smaller community, a sm- smaller events. I know they're, like I said, even things like Merle Fest, those are big festivals, but it is just a different experience where a lot of the people in the audience are also people that are playing this style of music and the people that are, um, on stage also, you know, are playing music when they're not being paid to do it. You know, they're sitting around jamming and having, you know, um, this kind of cultural experience as much as, you know, anything. So I do think it's super special about bluegrass. Right, fellas, it's time to care about your hair. I was just like you. Doing my hair meant hairsprays and gels that would either leave my hair crunchy or greasy. So what would I do? I'd throw in a ball cap on my way out the door and call it a day rather than fool with my hair. Then I found Samson's Hair Care. Their hair pomade is the best, truly. It has a matte finish so your hair doesn't look wet and oily, and it's made with essential oils and other all-natural ingredients. has an all-day hold as well so you can be confident that your hair will look as good in the evening as it did when you left the house. And it smells great too. The best part is Samson's Hair Care is a partner with an organization called Life Water. Samson's donates a portion of every purchase to help provide clean drinking water to families in Africa. How cool is that? Great hair is a staple in bluegrass. Just look at Del McCurry and Larry Sparks. Samson's knows this. That's why they're offering Walls of Time listeners 10% off. Visit samsonshaircare.com and use code bluegrass to save 10% on your order. It's like Samson from the Bible. His hair was legendary and now yours can be too. samsonshaircare.com, code bluegrass at checkout to save 10% off the best hair pomade you'll ever buy. That's samsonshaircare.com code bluegrass and now back to walls of time now you showed so much talent at a young age and were blessed with so many great opportunities that i'm sure that you whether you knew what it meant or not you heard the word prodigy labeled on you a lot (laughs) as a kid did you feel any pressure hearing that term applied to you um i don't think the word made me feel any more pressure than maybe i would have put on myself anyway because I I mean I remember um truly from the the time I picked up the instrument and I'm I'm grateful because I know a lot of people you know I have friends um in their mid-20s you know like my age that that don't still don't really know what their calling is in life still don't really know what they're fully passionate about and that's fine it takes you know it's a journey to, to find those things but I feel so blessed and fortunate that for whatever reason I felt that I was going to do this for a living from the time I was like eight I just knew that's what I wanted to do with my life you know I thought I want to do exactly what my heroes are doing and I want to you know play I want to make records I want to travel all those things um and so I guess there was a certain amount of um it can be good pressure in some ways it's the thing that keeps you motivated and makes you want to you know, to not get complacent, to keep you pushing forward, to try to become a better musician and a better singer and writer and all those things that I really care about. Um, so yeah, there was pressure there, but probably not so much from the, the outside as yeah. much as, you know, internally really. Cause I think I've always probably put more pressure on myself than maybe I even need to sometimes. But, but my dad was, um, I say dad, cause he was really the one that shared you know my mom so supportive traveled with me to so many festivals couldn't have done it without her but my dad was really the one that like loved 
the music, you know, he was the one that really was, you know, hoping that my brother and I would play music, and, and I think he saw that, that I particularly wanted it for, you know, a career, um, my brother's great talent, you know, he, he loves to play too, but he always had interest in all kinds of things, for me, I didn't have the same kind of broad interest in, like, you know, sports, or, um, even hanging out with my friends. I, I loved it, but like my friends were like, you know, the old dudes at the jam session <laughs> and I loved it. I was totally content with that. Um, and so my dad, I remember he would say things to me, you know, even, even before I, uh, got to play with Allison, you know, and I said that like, I was drawing these pictures of me on stage with her and I, I would stare at the back of say a, a blue highway album or a Tony Rice album and realize that they recorded for rounder records. And, you know, I think somewhere I would like draw up these like faux CDs and put the rounder label the on there. Because, on yeah. Cause that was like, that was the label I wanted to be on. Cause these people were on there. Tony Rice now it's cross on there. Yeah. So, I mean, that was my goal. And, uh, and so, I remember my dad would say stuff because he knew I really wanted it. But like any kid, you have distractions and you get, you know, kind of lazy sometimes and you don't work at it as hard as you might. And my dad would say things to me sometimes to encourage me. Um, he was very real with me. I knew he was proud of me, but he was also very real about it. You know, he would say, you know, now, uh, I think I'd been playing a couple years and I was just starting to learn to improvise and I knew a lot of fiddle tunes at that point. I was learning fiddle tunes every week and and he said, you already know enough to, you know, play and enjoy yourself for the rest of your life. If you never learned anything else, you already know enough to have fun, go to these jam sessions and do it till you're an old lady. But if you really, really want to do this for a living like you say you do you got to keep getting better because right now you're really talented for a 10 year old girl you're really good and but he goes but you play like a 10 year old and one of these days when you're 16 if you're still playing the way you do now like he said right now everybody's like wow look at that little girl she's really cute she's good like you know she's very talented for her age but if you're 16 and you play that way, then people might not be as impressed with you. You know, you're getting a lot of pats on the back right now, but you got to keep getting better because when you're 16, you need to play like you're 16. And when you're, you know, 25, you want to sound like you've been working to, you know, your whole life to sound like you should at 25. So he would really, you know, kind of keep me in, so, so in he, check that way. He was really aware that the cute factor would wear off. You know, yeah, because that's he, something that I, I was very like. Yeah, I was very in touch with like that. That wasn't going to be lasting. Like, yeah, you know, straight away, which I'm grateful for. I'm I'm really grateful that my parents always really tried to make sure that my feet were on the ground and you know didn't overpraise. You know, I I knew they were proud of me. I never doubted that. Um, they wouldn't have been doing all the things they were doing for me if if they weren't. But yeah, they were very much you know. Um, constructive in yeah. the way they needed to be. Or he would say things to motivate me like, well, you know, one of these days Alison Krauss is going to call you to come play the Grand Ole Opry and you're not going to be ready because you ain't even going to know any of her songs. So I'd be like, okay, you're right. I guess I better get in here with every time you say goodbye and be learning these solos. <laughs> <laughs> so it was a good, a good way to motivate me. Growing up playing the mandolin, did you notice that there weren't a lot of female pickers? Did you notice that at all? You know, because you're the first ever mandolin player of the year. Did did it register in your brain at all that 
being a girl was as unique as being 10 years old and being this good? Um, I think I probably noticed it, but like it wasn't something I thought about. Okay. It's like I was aware of it, if that makes sense, without yeah thinking anything weird. You might about have heard it. somebody say something about it, but you yeah. didn't like dwell on or it. Or I noticed, like you know, there were there weren't a lot of women in general. Like at the jam sessions I would go to, the the local yes. jam sessions, yes. I would just be me and like you know these older gentlemen sitting around playing. Yeah, they just got them playing checkers dad. or something. Yeah, you know, which was fine. Um, they were all just super kind to me. Had me get on stage with them and treated me. I mean, welcomed me in as though I was one of them truly i mean so i've i've never felt uninvited or um i've never felt like i wasn't welcome personally i i know different people have had different experiences with that i've always felt very much welcome and a part of whatever circle or if it was me and a bunch of guys that that was fine i was just really used to that um but i do remember plenty of i think that's probably one of the reasons that allison became such a a hero of mine because up until that point I'd mostly just been hearing all these you know guys and then to, to hear her voice on these albums while hearing somebody as great as Adam Steffi play mandolin too it was just like kind of the best of both worlds I was better. just like yeah. wow <laughs> these are all the things that I'm that I love and I'm trying to strive to be good at and um I remember being particularly struck uh, when, well, so every every week when we would go to these jam sessions, we'd have one on Friday night we'd go to and one on Saturday night we'd go to. And um, we would drive out to, um, my little town doesn't even have a Walmart, it's super small, um, but we would drive out to Jamestown, Tennessee, where a lot of my family is from, and, you know, they had a little Walmart there, and at the time, that was the only place around that you could even get CDs, and uh, especially Back then, Walmart had a pretty decent bluegrass section. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I remember I used to go in and like pick out my favorite albums and put them on the front all over the place. I I, still do that. Oh, man. (laughs) I would like, I would like grab the the ones I really loved and like stack them in front of like all the genres. (laughs) It it would just look like total bluegrass. Oh, oh, I do that. If when I'm walking through Walmart (laughs) and they'll have like the new releases, I'll be like, top shelf music goes on the top shelf and I'll get Allison and put her like right, you know. I'll put her in front of Florida glad Georgia I'm, Line or glad something. Glad I'm not the only one. <laughs> yeah, you're not. Um, Trust but, me. <laughs> but I used to, it used to be so fun, like for me to just rearrange the 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 you know albums to my favorite ones. And I remember I saw a Rhonda Vincent album, and I saw a woman holding a mandolin, and I was like, oh my gosh! And I thought, was that the first time you'd seen that? I think so. How old were you? Yeah, I was probably you know nine or ten, and and I went, um, wow. That's what I'm going to look like someday. And that was like one of the first times that I felt like I'd really seen, you know, this image. I'd seen Allison, but she's a fiddle player. Yeah. And seeing Rhonda, I was just like, wow, like that's, you know, here's this this beautiful woman holding a mandolin. And it was such a cool thing to see. It was like really the first time that I had related to the look of an album cover as much as like anything. It was you know? just really empowering. To yeah. See that. Yeah. And so, like, I realized it, and I, I still remember that, but um, it wasn't something I thought about a whole lot, you know, and still don't think about it that much, because I've always felt very much a part of the community, but, um, yeah, I think it's totally an exciting time for women, and there's more and more women than ever before, thanks to people like Allison and Rhonda and all these, you know, women that have kind of paved the way for my generation, and, you know, now... A lot of my peers, there's a lot of great women out there my age that are doing, 
you know, great things and inspiring young women that will be the next generation. It's it's super exciting. Another thing that's super exciting uh, about you is not only are you blazing trails for females in bluegrass, but also I know you we were talking earlier about mixing, engineering, producing, which that's something that just in general music there's not a lot of women blazing trails in that field. So do you think about that at all? Or do you just think, there's my music, I want to be a part of it? Um, I think mostly, like, yeah, it's, it's just my music. I really want to be a part of it. And I love every element of it. I love, you know, from start to finish when thinking about um, making a new album from, you know, I, I write most of my own songs these days, but from just either writing or finding great songs, I love the process of arranging them, imagining what they're going to sound like and who you want to play on down to the sequencing of what they're going to be like on an album. Um, you know, the, the quality of the recording, the entire production from start to finish, the mix, all those things are like super important to me. And, um, you know, same, same goes with the live show about thinking about how to present a live show and what that feels like and what you want people to experience when they come see you play and what musicians that, inspire me that I want to be surrounded by I just really love the entire process of both you know putting together an album and then putting together a live show they're quite different but you know both things that I kind of just love the entire process of Do you ever feel like the hustle and bustle of life keeps you from accomplishing your goals and staying on track? Have you ever felt exhausted at the end of the day, but yet feel like you've accomplished nothing? Help focus on your goals and stay on track with a self-journal from Best Self Co. Whether you're starting your own business, a college student, or you're just feeling overwhelmed with day-to-day life, the self-journal is packed with tools to help you get more done. With features including daily planning, a 13-week roadmap for your goals, inspirational quotes, daily and weekly habit tracking, and a place to record morning and evening gratitude. Best Self Co. offers a line of productivity tools to help you accomplish more. Check out all of their products at bestself.co. Use code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off of your first purchase. That's bestself.co, code BLUEGRASS to save 15% off your first purchase. And now back to Walls of Time. When did you start really focusing on your songwriting? Because it has grown so much over the past several years. Um, When did that start to become uh, an additional focus to you in addition to picking? Yeah, I mean, I always wrote a little bit um, because, you know, mandolin was, like I said, I've actually sang longer because I grew up, I mean, my mom, I remember sitting in my mom's lap and her teaching me my very first song when I was probably three, you know, and singing in church. But everybody sang and everybody sang pretty well you know it's just something that that you'd hear in church um and and in you know this part of the world in particular um but when I picked up the mandolin that was when I really kind of started to feel like a musician and the idea of like you know identifying with this whole thing of like this is what I want my life to be in my career and all those things and so I always wrote a little bit but early on it was more focused on writing some tunes you know instrumental things with a song every once in a while and then my dad kind of went through a little spurt of being interested in writing some songs so he would write a little bit or you know try to get me to help him write something and so I think my first album Secrets my first rounder album um Secrets which was the first vocal album I did um 
had like maybe three songs, uh, one of which I wrote with my dad, three original songs, an instrumental, uh, a vocal co-write with my dad, and then one that I wrote by myself. And then my Daybreak album that followed that a few years later had maybe a little over half that I wrote. And then, you know, four or five years later when Weight of Mind came out, then, you know, all those uh, songs were original. So it's kind of been a slow dive into really feeling the need to write I think um somewhere I just discovered that my singing voice um when I would really sing what felt right to me as a singer and what I felt like I connected to I mean bluegrass you know if you really go back to the earlier stuff I mean I know there's so much great instrumental stuff with thinking about, you know, Earl Scruggs' banjo and Bill Monroe's mandolin, but those harmonies, I mean, it's it's so much about the that, singing, that too. That 46 band's harmonies. It's insane. Yeah. I mean, and like, no fixes. It's like a live take. Yeah. You know, it's incredible how great those guys sang. So Bluegrass has, has put such a focus on harmonies and singing, um, which I've always loved that element of it. But I will say, like, when I was kind of coming up, a lot of my generation was also really focused on the picking. Still are. You know, yeah. and there's a lot of that where it seems like, um, and it's not the case, you know, you can't really generalize everything, yeah, of course, yeah. you know, so I don't mean to sound like that. But but there is such a focus on this, like, you know, man, we got to have this hot solo, and then, you know, everybody's got to, like, shred that... The singing Mash. takes a, yeah. takes a back seat, you know, and it's it's um it's a bummer to me because really the the singing is just so great in the early bluegrass and like you know it's um part of what makes bluegrass so wonderful is to have all this this really rich singing. Um, but coming up through that, I went through you know a periods of time of like playing in these situations where you know I would sing but it sometimes felt like I would sing and it was you know I wanted it to be good don't get me wrong but the songs were like are these songs fun to play and you know the lyrical content in and of itself um, I guess I just didn't really realize the the need that I would later have to really connect with the lyric even more you know so even as I would write I would write things that um you know, not that, that that it wasn't as honest as I knew how to give at that time, but, you know, I have songs like, still to this day, one of the songs people really ask me to play a lot is a song called Best Buy, you know, which was just kind of this quirky song I wrote, just sitting in the parking lot of Best Buy, and, and like, that's, you know, it's still a fun song, I enjoy it, but the lyrical content was, like, completely made up, and, and that's fine, too, totally fine, there's, like, some of the greatest songwriters know how to tell stories and, and write things. And um, the best singers I know can really take a song anybody wrote and really turn it into something magical. But as I started getting older, I just sort of was like thinking about the the things I was singing about. And as I started to write, I just felt like I had things that I just... I wanted to write about what I knew, what I saw, what I really felt. And it... And it um, felt more important to me than ever before to express that part of myself. Almost like I didn't decide it as much as it just had to happen, if that makes sense. So um, I think I had always written, I mean, even some of the stuff off my Way to Mind album had been around a long time. I just thought, I thought, well, I don't know if if this song makes sense for me to record because maybe it's not the song for like people to, you know, solo all over. And somewhere I just kind of went, man, that just 
whatever. <laughs> like, like you can still express the musical side of yourself in a lot of different ways. You know what I mean? It just doesn't have to be, here's your solo. It could be, hey, I wrote this, this thing, this theme that you hear in the middle of the song that's a part of this song, you know, as much as the lyric, it goes with it. And it's not, you know, maybe it's not some big lengthy improvised solo, but it's a piece of something, you know? And then, I don't know, just the more I would write, the things I felt like suited my voice. I've never thought I was a a really great bluegrass singer as far as a a lead singer. Um, A lot of the the things, I mean, I grew up listening to so many men <laughs> sing, and a lot of the songs that I love, if you go to a jam session, I just would rather sing harmony. I'm just like, I love that. I'll do that all day long, be the tenor singer and, and play mandolin if somebody wants to play in keys like A and B and G, you know, but a lot of those old songs, if I wanted to sing them, I would have to be doing them in keys like, you know, E flat and, <laughs> you know, and D and, and keys that just, I don't know, maybe the banjo doesn't have the same kind of power as if the, the banjo players have learned to play their J.D. Crow solos and they can't do that in D. And, you know, so I think I just um really felt when I started writing that I could sing what I wanted to sing, if that makes yeah. sense. And it didn't necessarily come out super traditional. And, um... And I've sort of just started embracing that, and it's felt good to just, you know, try to write and not worry about what it is, you know, just just try to do something that feels honest. And it doesn't mean that I don't love bluegrass music as much as I ever have, and that I, you know, I still plan on playing it my entire life in some form or fashion. Um, but maybe my solo albums, you know, might not reflect the traditional side as much as a result of, you know, the type of thing that comes naturally to me. How do you think that your background in bluegrass has impacted the music that you're making now that is kind of genreless, it's kind of Sierra Hole music more than anything else? Well, I think bluegrass, um, and I tell people this all the time, no matter what you know they ultimately want to play, what a, whatever kind of music they want to play, bluegrass is an incredible form of music for helping you really develop technique on your instrument. Um, classical music is very much that too. They're very different in the the ways in which they're approached, um, the, the the way they're taught, the way they're learned. You know, the music is learned, um, but they're not that different, really, in terms of the music itself. I mean, you could play, um, and I mean, I'm by no means like you know some classical expert, but like you know, if I've learned to play a Bach piece on the mandolin, you know. Playing that Bach piece on the mandolin or playing a Bill Monroe tune at a very high level requires a lot of the same technical abilities to be able to really do it, you know? Because it's such an instrumental form of music, um, it requires great dexterity, um, attention to detail with being able to play clean, good timing, good tone, all those things. So I think because bluegrass puts such a focus on both, you know, playing by ear it's an improvised style of music the technical ability it takes to play it it also being built on all this great singing being able to hear harmonies quickly all those things are amazing tools for anybody to learn regardless of the style of music you really end up playing those are principles that that might get lost in some other genres as well it's just yeah it's it's such a, a great foundation so i feel so grateful to have grown up with that style of music because it's you know it has all the has all the boxes you can kind of check for trying to, you know, grow into striving at least to be a really strong musician in a lot of areas. I know that you mentioned, you know, 
while your solo albums and tours might reflect a, a different side of you musically, that you're always still going to be true to bluegrass. And I've seen that even with the big grand opening of the Bluegrass Music Hall of Fame. And you got to play with all these Hall of Fame legends. And I was sitting there watching you, and you were just like giddy <laughs> like a little kid. I was so stoked. I was like, oh my gosh, I'm getting to kick off 1949. <laughs> Larry Sparks, blue for Trinity Blue. Um, yeah, no, it was so, it was just so cool. It was so exciting. Um, I, I love it. I love it. And I, you know, I'll say this too. It's just like anything. Um, as much as I love bluegrass music, it's kind of like, you know, maybe cereal is your favorite thing to eat for breakfast. But if you eat it for breakfast every single morning, maybe you kind of forget exactly why you love it so much, you know? And for me, the more I explore other styles of music when I'm doing my own thing, it can make being able to come back and be the side girl for Larry Sparks feel a thousand times more epic because it's just like I go, wow, like that is just such a dream to be able to, you know, play mandolin, sing harmony with somebody like Larry Sparks or sit back and chop while, you know, Paul Williams and Dole Lawson sing this incredible thing. You know, it's, it's, I love it and I'm never going to stop loving and I'm always going to love it and I'm always going to find, you know, hopefully Lord willing ways to play it and ways to enjoy it. And, and in a, a, a way it's almost that much more beautiful because it's not the thing that I'm, you know, going out on the road and doing, <laughs> you know. 365 days a year. (laughs) If you have any advice for any young pickers that are, uh, are just starting out in this music um, that maybe are, are like you were when you were 10 and just have big dreams of playing the opera with Alison Krauss someday. um, What advice would you give them? I would just say you gotta, you gotta really love it. You gotta have fun, but you gotta work hard too. You know, I think, um, my dad's advice to me when I was 10, like, you already know enough to, to you know, enjoy music and, and grow into an old lady and sit on the front porch and jam with people and have fun, you know? And if that is your desire for playing music, that is totally great. That's fine. I know plenty of people that are super talented, but they don't want to do it for a living. It's not, well, it's not their calling, you know? That's totally fine. Um but if you really believe that you want to be a full-time musician, I mean, it is a, it's a difficult career to really take on. And if you don't love it, I I just don't think you'll last in it, you know? So I think like you got to, A, love it like nothing else. I mean, it's like, what do they say? If you can quit, you should, you know, I've never imagined being able to do anything else. I mean, there's times where literally, because I'm so passionate about it, it can be the most depressing thing too, because you invest your whole heart and soul and, you know, it can be exhausting with all the, the travel or you care so much about trying to do well in this area. You know, you might get off stage one night and just feel like, you know, ah, that was terrible or whatever, you know? And so it's a kind of a roller coaster emotionally to do this for a living. And I think anybody that really has done it for a long time can, can tell you that. But if you really love it, and you work hard it's unlike anything because you're doing something that you're really meant to do and and that you're passionate about and you know I feel so blessed to get to do what I love for a living really I think it's um just the most incredible thing to be able to say I get to stand on stage and play for people as my job and enjoy it you know so I would just encourage young people to you know 
learn all they can, work hard, and try to just be the best they can be. And if you love it and you work hard, you'll succeed at it. I really believe that. Welcome back to the Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. I'm your host, Daniel Mullen, sitting here with my co-producer, Ty Gilpin. I had a blast hanging out with Miss Sierra Hull for today's episode. Yes, great interview. Great chemistry between two of you. I thought it was really uh, fantastic. The conversation flowed. Uh, it's great to hear uh, Sierra's uh, stories about where she came from and where she's going. I haven't heard your very first interview you did with her. You said that was the first person you interviewed uh, back in your old bluegrass radio show time slot that you used to do on Sunday evening. So do you think you did better this time? I hope so. I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> One thing that has that has not changed is Sierra is still just as kind and gracious as ever. A real leader in today's roots music scene, both bluegrass, Americana, and beyond. And hearing about uh, her start and her rise uh, to her role as such a, uh, a powerful lady in roots music today was fascinating. Yeah, so much respect for Sierra Hull. Uh, it's just so great. She just makes you happy just listening to her. Such a bright spirit. Uh, it's so great to hear how grateful she is for being able to meet and be mentored by our heroes, you know, Alison Krauss, Steely, Rhonda Vincent, Adam Steffi, and for her to become the icon that she has uh, and her graciousness, her humility, she really is just a great mo- role model for all artists. She truly is. Uh, as I said, she's the same person uh, now as she was when I first met her, uh, you know, close to 10 years ago when she was really starting to, to grow into her own as a as a mandolin player and a, and a bluegrass figure. I thought it was also great for her to, to tell folks that, yeah, maybe she's making her own music that's a little bit different, but she's still such a bluegrass fan at heart. And it really comes across uh, just when you're speaking to her or when you watch her life. Yeah, you know what? She's so talented. She's allowed to do whatever she wants. Absolutely. <laughs> it's great. Absolutely. It it is a it's cool to see hear her get giddy talking about Larry Sparks and Blue Highway. Uh and then to see how she has made such an impact uh as a role model and just as a mandolin master, regardless of any genre labels, is is fantastic. Yeah, I loved uh, her story about being uh her first time being at Merle Fest. Uh, I was actually there uh, the year that she was there because I remember hearing about this young girl who was just crushing the mantle and the word got around the festival pretty quick. Uh, of course, we didn't know then uh, what was in store for the Roots Music World at the time. And I loved hearing about the Chris Thiele Jam and her getting to meet her hero, Allison Krauss, for the first time. Uh, just a fantastic story. And yeah, I remember being at Merle Fest that year and just hearing about this young lady who was already just killing on the mandolin. And I'm so glad that she went on uh, to pursue her career. It sounds like her parents did a great job of both mentoring her, encouraging her, supporting her. And I think that's a really important aspect in uh, any musician's life. Uh, so I'm so glad all those uh, elements combined for her to become such the icon and master that she is today. A great lesson in not resting on your laurels. The way she t- described um, how her parents kept her grounded and letting her know they're like, yeah, you're great now, but you got to keep, you got to keep pushing to be better. Uh, you don't want to just kind of settle for all the praise and, and acclaim you're getting at the time. And she's all, always one pushing uh, to be more creative, uh, to be a better player. It was such a great time 
time just getting to sit and chat with her, hear her stories, laugh. Always such a joy to be around. Her bubbly personality is just infectious. Yeah, you know, it's a theme here with a lot of these folks that you're talking to. Hard work pays off. Everybody emphasized the fact that they've had to work hard in their careers. And uh, I think it's just a great thing to keep in mind that uh, fortitude and sticking with it and grit and perseverance is how these folks have gotten where they are. Absolutely. Next time on Walls of Time podcast, we sit down for a two-part interview. We'll hear part one of a conversation with one of the most beloved bassmen in bluegrass music, Mike Bubb. That's right. I can't wait for everybody to hear the conversation with Mike, another one of those great positive guys who's been a mentor to many other young artists, uh, spent time with the legendary lineup of the Del McCurry Band. And I think you guys are really going to love listening to Daniel and Mike talk uh, for a two-part episode, like you said. Mike is one of the reasons we have this podcast. I don't know if I told you this, Ty. Tell, tell everybody. So Mike is a big podcast fan, and it was uh, a couple years ago at Spigma. I listen to podcasts occasionally, but not a ton. Um, and Bub came up to me at Spigma, and he said, man, do you listen to podcasts? And I said, uh, every now and then, not not a ton. Uh, why? He said, you've got to check out this podcast, Cocaine and Rhinestones. I'm sure most of our listeners are aware, Tyler Mayhenko's Cocaine and Rhinestones that really uh, helped to cause a, a rejuvenation of the history of uh, classic country music uh, with his uh, exciting podcast. Uh, but Bub said, you've got to check this out. I know that you'll dig it. And he dives into the you know classic country and talks about Ernest Tubb and Loretta Lynn and Tom Tom T. Hall and uh, Jeannie C. Riley and Buck Owens and all sorts of folks. So on the way home from Spigma that year, I uh, pulled it up per Bub's recommendation. He sent me a link, and I could not get enough of it. I was had never been so thankful to be stuck in traffic than driving home from Spigma that year. It was you know, one or two in the morning, and I'm stuck uh, in standstill traffic, but I didn't really mind because I was loving listening to Cocaine Rhinestones. And it was a listening to, to that podcast that kind of helped spur the idea that I wanted to uh, maybe do a, a bluegrass-type podcast. Uh, but Bub's the one that turned me on to it, so I was a, a real, really cool for me to get to let it come full circle and have him be a special guest on Season 1 of Walls of Time Bluegrass Podcast. Yeah, I'm with you. I've listened to Cocaine Rhinestones as well. All the episodes, fantastic base of country music history and uh yeah welcome folks to check that out and check out the next episode of walls of time where danny will sit down with one of our favorites mr mike bub follow us on social media we are on facebook and instagram at at walls of time podcast on twitter at walls of time pod and you can listen and learn more about our podcast at walls of time podcast.com And be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and share the Walls of Time podcast with your music friends. We'll be back next time on Walls of Time podcast with Mike Bubb. Thanks for listening. Walls of Time Bluegrass podcast is produced by Ty Gilpin and Daniel Mullins, edited by Daniel Mullins, and is a production of Blue Poncho Media. Visit wallsoftimepodcast.com for more information.